Today we're going to be in Luke 16. Last week we covered the parable of the unjust servant and pretty much all of his shrewdness, which forces us to ask the question of ourselves, what type of stewards, what type of stewards are we with God's gifts? And have we prepared in this life to be received in the next life? Today, we're going to see the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is really a continuation of that thought. Not only are you prepared to be received, but what if it happened today? Did you ever think of that? Today. We think about all the things we have to do this week, maybe today when we leave church, but what if our life was to be taken from us today? That's a sobering thought. It should be a sobering thought for all of us. Where would we go? Are we ready? Well, I know where I'm going. And it's not because of arrogance or presumptuousness. It's because the Bible tells me. John 5:24, 1 John 5:11 through 13. If we're in Christ, we, we just go right to be with the Lord when we die. But the truth is, we don't get an appointment date with death as if we were going for our yearly physical. It takes us by surprise. Even people who have been sick for years and, and they pass away, uh, who, can, who can know the hour or the minute that, that your life is taken from you? We don't. And I'm hoping by the end of this message that those of you who haven't thought about preparing for eternity will reconsider and receive that gift of assurance that our Creator offers to all of us. It's actually a good message. Verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the, doors, the dogs came and licked his sores. There's a few things about this story that uh, Jesus tells us. Number one, some don't believe that this was a parable, but it was an actual event because of the atypical naming of characters, which is not common. Lazarus is named. Does, you know, he's a beggar, but he's, he's named by Jesus. Um, Abraham, we're going to see later that Lazarus goes to be with Abraham, right? And also, he said, a certain rich man. Maybe he didn't name the rich man because a lot of people would have known him, but it does appear that this may have been an actual event. Notwithstanding that debate, it's very clear that Jesus is unveiling some truths about the afterlife. And we've said it before, studies have been done. Jesus speaks more about hell and judgment uh, and things like that, then he speaks about heaven, because why? He's trying to warn us not to go there. And two, this man is very rich. He's clothed in fine linen. He fared sumptuously. He lived well every day, and he was clothed in purple. It it's really helps you under, understand the wealth that this man had, because today we have dyes, you know, different colors for different clothing. But back then, certain types of dyes for certain types of clothing may have been uh, extracted from a rare plant, and it was very expensive. If you wore purple back then, you were wealthy. Uh, you saw that, again, there was many poor in that day. You had your rich and you had your poor, and for the most part, there was no middle class. If the way things keep going in New Jersey, that might be where we are soon. But the third thing is Lazarus, his name means God has helped. And even though this isn't the same Lazarus as the brother of Mary and Martha, we spoke about that Lazarus, it's a different Lazarus. But we see that God helped both of these men, Lazarus, in their death far more than in their temporal lives. It's kind of like the benefit of hindsight. You, people wonder, we wonder, why did God do this? And why did God do that? And why did he allow this? 
we, we have these questions. Some questions just won't be answered until the end, until we go to be with him, and it'll all be explained to us. But a lot of times we have these questions. I'm sure when Jesus was on the cross, the disciples, well, the disciples fled. There's only one that was there with him. They were like, wait a minute, this is our Messiah. What is he doing on that cross? This is bad. You know, this is bad for us. But they didn't get the big picture until he rose from the dead. And number four, Lazarus is in bad shape. He's not only poor, but he's physically afflicted. He had to be laid at the rich man's gate, which indicates he may have had problems walking. He may have been paralyzed. So he's, he's hungry, he may be physically afflicted, and he had these awful sores to the point where the dogs had to lick them. Now, if those of you who have dogs know that they could be pretty gross. And if you have an open sore, dogs will lick the sores. That They'll try to clean it for you. Hopefully you use some, another method than that today, but that's why I'm a cat lover. <laughs> So this guy's in bad shape. Verse 22, it says, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Another few points of interest here. I'm sorry, I missed verse 22. It says, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's important. The angels apparently some, have some type of role in guiding the spirit into the afterlife. I don't know if this was just prior to the resurrection and then after the resurrection it was different because we know that uh, Philippians 1, 21 through 24, that Paul says it's pretty much an instantaneous thing. To depart from here is to be present with the Lord. And in Luke 23, when the uh, thief was on the cross... He, Jesus said to him, I, sure, I say to you assuredly, today you will be with me in paradise. So there was no middleman or whatever. What you believe in Jesus Christ, boom, you go to be with him. Uh, so the, the angels, I don't know, maybe it's a, a quick thing to guide the spirit. I'm not really sure, but it's, it's, it's interesting. The second thing here is that Lazarus is with Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, going back to Genesis 12, he's the father of the Jewish nation. He's a, a well-respected patriarch promises of God's promises were made to him about the people that would come from him. So Lazarus is in a good place and the rich man is in Hades in a bad place. Three, it kind of brings us to the doctrine of hell. The word hell is not, it doesn't actually come through in the Greek. It's a more, hell is more of an encompassing word. It doesn't really exist there. However, uh, neither does rapture. But we know through the scriptures what the rapture is. If something is described, if I describe to you a large animal with gray skin and a thick skin, he's a pachyderm, he's got a little tail, big feet, a trunk, and tusks, you know he lives in India or Africa, he's an elephant, right? So the descriptors help us to understand hell as they do with other things, like the rapture. A rapture doesn't come out in the Greek, but it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians, starting, uh, 4, starting with 13, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead will rise in Christ, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will also be caught up in the air, in the clouds of the air, to meet with them. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, comfort one another with these words. The word to be, to be caught up in the air is harpazu in the Greek, which translates to uh, rapturo in the Latin, which becomes rapture. So, Again, there's a lot of concepts that are explained, but the actual word's not there. Now, going further into this, uh, hell, all encompassed, is a place of punishment, post-mortem, which encompasses a few words that are in the Greek, Hades, Gehenna, 
and Limne Poros, which is the lake of fire. Poros translate to Pyros, which translates to Pyro in the English, which is where we get fire from. Pyrotechnic, pyromania, all that kind of stuff. It's very interesting. Uh, and then the last thing, four, is Hades, which is the realm of the dead. In the Old Testament, it was also called Sheol, right? Hades has two compartments, a good side and a bad side. And apparently it's connected by an impassable chasm or a gulf where people can see and hear each other, but they can't pass or experience the experience of the other person. They can't bring things back and forth. And the bad side is actually a temporary lockup, in a sense, until the great white throne judgment. I'm going to read that for you, and then I'm going to do some visual aids here. Go to Turn to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. It says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So for, for you who are watching, you'll have visual aids, but you who are listening won't get the benefit of my artwork. This is Hades, the bad place. See, he's not happy. And there's flames. And this is the other compartment. And it's pretty good. See, he's happy. By the way, I do my own artwork. <laughs> and this is the great white throne judgment. You see the gavel in the judge's hand, right? Now, I, I really haven't lost it. It's good for visual aids, trust me. So this is a bad guy who's in the bad part, right? And this is a good guy who's in the good part. And what happens is, uh, at the end, in Revelation 20, death, Hades, the sea gives up the dead, and even this compartment, which is bad, goes here. This is the lake of fire. This is the final judgment where everything, all the evil and all the bad people go. So this gets taken and put into here. See? Isn't that neat? <laughs> Okay, so the final judgment is instituted. People come from that area. They come before the great, great white throne judgment, and then they're thrown into the lake of fire, if you're evil, of course. And we're going to go into the good side, too. Now, this is an easy analogy, and I don't know if in our jurisprudence system, because a lot of things, as much as our current society likes to deny the work of God and the Bible, uh, we actually have, we take a lot of our things in society from the scripture. And I don't know if our jurisprudence comes from that, but here's the analogy. If you are charged with a crime, maybe murder, and the police catch you, they arrest you, they put you in a local lockup. You'll go in the police station or you'll go in the county jail, right? And then what happens is eventually you see the judge. You have your day in court, but you can't leave that facility. You see the judge, the judge pronounces a sentence or the jury, and the judge you know, pronounces a um, life imprisonment. 
Then you go from the judge's seat where you stood before, and then you go into the state penitentiary. Now, does it make sense? So Hades is like a local lockup. It's a temporary thing. But in the end, every, you know, the evil, the wicked will go before the judge in the great white throne judgment, and they'll go before the lake of fire, they'll, and that's where they'll be forever. Now, the interesting thing is Christians don't go before the great white throne judgment because that's for, for bad. Christians go in front of another type of judgment, but it's called the Bema Seat, and we find that in other scriptures, 1 Corinthians, etc. And what that is, the judge judges you, in a different way, not because of your wickedness, but because of the things that you've done, you know, uh, saving souls or doing whatever it is, whatever God's gifts that he's given to you that you do for his, you know, further the kingdom of heaven, you get certain gifts from there. So you get almost like a judgment seat, like the Olympics, you know, the gold medal, the bronze, the silver. So it's a different type of judgment seat. So again, um, simplifying it, arraignments and discovery, for those of you who are in the law field, uh, if, you're, if you're going through before the great white throne judgment, your arraignment will be you'll be formally charged by God himself and uh, discovery like that. Uh, he'll probably role play all the evil that you've done in your life and the fact that you've rejected God's way of salvation and then your fate will be sealed. No plea bargains, no appeals, no nepotism, none of that, none of that stuff will exist, right? Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And that's it. There's no such thing as reincarnation. If you're evil, you don't get to come back as a grasshopper and try again to be good. It just doesn't work. Life is a one-shot deal and there's no do-overs. Now, the good side, which actually I should have done first, because uh, that's what that's actually happens first. The good side, uh, where the smiley face is over there, when Jesus died and rose, he freed people from Abraham's bosom in a sense. And then they were able immediately to have fellowship with, with God himself in heaven. Jesus paid the penalty. But in the meantime, their stay wasn't so bad. You know, you could see from the story that Lazarus, he had it pretty good where he was, right? Um, Calvary believes, and I agree, because I think it's scriptural and I'm going to go through it, that what happened was... Between the death on the cross and prior to Jesus' ascension to be at the right hand of the Father that the Bible tells us, right? Based on these and many other scriptures, he had come down to Hades and freed those captives. And I'm going to go through some of those scriptures. First of all, Matthew 12:40. Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I believed, well, I know that that was a, a Jewish colloquialism. Uh, three days and three nights actually meant if you spent part of the days, but not all three days and three nights, that could be considered in that expression, right? Uh, so that's the first scripture. The second one is Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He meaning Jesus. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I'm not going to go as far as make a doctrine about where exactly Hades exists. I don't know. 
Uh, you know, it's, it's something that God knows. Some people think that it's somewhere in the, in, in the earth, in the center of the earth, but I'm, I'm not going to go there because I don't think there's enough to back that up. Uh, Acts 2, 29 through, through 35. Acts 2, 29 through 35. Peter's uh, making a a speech at Pentecost, and this is what he says. And we we have different people speaking. We had Jesus speaking in Matthew. We had uh, Peter speaking here, and we just uh, covered a scripture where Paul was speaking in Ephesians 4. So you have a a wide variety of different men uh, who have spoken about this. Peter says this, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Let me just clarify that. David did prophesy. He was a king, but God also gave him the ability to prophesy. It's clear in the Psalms. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. Now, and we can go, if you're taking notes, Psalm 68:18 is one of the references here. And also Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. If you remember when uh, Jesus was speaking at the synagogue, I believe it was at at Nazareth, they didn't receive him well because he actually got up to read the scrolls and he read the messianic prophecies and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, this is what he read, Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where Jesus stopped. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But it continues and says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So talking about uh, opening the prison of those who are bound, giving liberty to the captives. There's a spiritual sense and there's also a physical application here. Okay, just wanted to give you a well-rounded Uh, different parts of scripture that all speak about the same thing. So apparently what happens is in the good side, when Jesus rose from the dead, all the people who were in the good side, Jesus came and released them from there so they could be with the last chair, heaven. Okay? So just like the bad side, something has to happen and then it's a final place. In the good side, something had to happen, and then there's a final place of abode, and that would be heaven. Okay, so we see that death is not only the great equalizer, but it also has the power to totally invert our circumstances, to change our circumstances, our status. It's a wake-up call for those who are living a self-aggrandizing life with no regard to those in need, which this rich man did. Verse 24, and then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, 
and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass, nor can those from there pass to us. So what's consistent about Hades and the lake of fire is, in the, in the bad section, is the flames, the torment, and the fact that you're conscious. The Bible talks about being thrown alive into the lake of fire, which is unusual because you're dead, and he's saying you're thrown alive into the lake of fire. What that's a picture of is consciousness. It's consciousness. It's not a place that you want a vacation, and it's certainly not a place that you want to live the rest of eternity. It seems also that this rich man hasn't changed all that much. He's concerned about his situation, and he still wants Lazarus to be his errand boy. Send Lazarus, send Lazarus. He keeps mentioning that he wants Abraham to send Lazarus on these errands, right? He still has this class mentality, right? What's really warming to my heart is I read a lot of overseas missionary news, and uh, in India, you've heard this before, I'm sure, they have the caste system. I believe there's five basic castes, and the Brahmins are on the top. But I know on the bottom are the Dalits, and the Dalit means basically untouchable. And these people, no matter what they do in their life, they're always going to look, be looked down on by, every, by everybody else in society. And no matter what they do, they can't change their status as a Dalit. And they're going to be oppressed for the, as long as they are on the earth in, in that society. But the cool thing is the biggest converts to Christianity in India are the Dalits. And they're, what they're realizing is that no matter how bad their life is here, that they're going to spend eternity in a good place. So sort of like Lazarus here. And in verse 25, we see a role reversal. It's good to see things from an opposite perspective. And it's good to see other people's perspectives. Somebody told me once, a pastor told me that even if you get somebody who complains about the church or complains about you or just goes on a tirade and they seem irrational, try to take something that they say because the, you, know, you can't totally discount people. There's got to be a small percentage in everyone of a, of, of a perception or of a truth or something that you might have done wrong that you can take from. So it's always good to look at, even if somebody doesn't present it well, to just think about what they're saying. You know, is, is there any merit? Do I own any of that? So it's good to see things from an opposite perspective. Speaking of a, of a role reversal, and I, I say this for a reason, I actually read a story about a boy who got molested by a man, and uh, the man apparently did it many times and was thrown in jail. The boy ends up growing up, gets into trouble, gets into skirmishes, skirmishes with the law, and he's sent to prison. He ends up getting sent to the same cell as the man who molested him many years back, and he recognized him, and he beat the guy unconscious. There's a reason why I say this, is because I suspect that if every time we hurt someone, if we immediately got that dose back to us, the world would be a different place. But it doesn't happen. People say, well, that, that's justice. Why wouldn't that happen? I believe that it's because God wants us willingly to change. You know, love isn't love if it's forced. And God wants us to come to him regardless of the circumstances, not because if you don't come to God, you're going to get punished immediately. God's very long-suffering. There's a few things here. There's no indication that the rich man is in hell because he's rich. Uh, from the little that we know, it just seems that his character and his heart was poor and it wasn't changing. And two, there's some communication, again, between these two tanks, uh, between the two holding tanks, the Hades, right? But there's no indication that in heaven or the lake of fire, the, the final place that people go, that there's any communication. 
It's, it's completely separate. Because Revelation 21.4 says, In heaven there will be no more sorrowing, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, for the former things have passed away, no more pain either. So how is it that we would know people that didn't make it and it wouldn't bother us? I don't know. Is it possible that it's just a heavenly perspective? When you step into the afterlife, your whole perspective changes? Or is it that uh, maybe that part of painful parts of our memories just don't exist anymore, like sin doesn't exist? It's just that's part of our, our lives and our experience that isn't there anymore. I don't know the answer to it. But I do know that I believe the Bible and Revelation 21 4 says there's going to be no more pain. Uh, so, verse 27. It says, Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, meaning Lazarus. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And again, we can look at it different ways, but it's almost like he's trying to play let's make a deal. You know, he keeps trying to come up with his terms that are going to be appropriate for what his needs are. Maybe he thinks he can still call the shots, being that he's so used to being influential and wealthy. And it doesn't seem like maybe there's a whole lot of repentance there. It's more of, this is, we've got to do something to fix this problem, not necessarily repentance. And we'll talk more, hold that thought about fruits of repentance in chapter 17. I still see a self-centeredness in this man. He's concerned for his comfort. He's concerned for his brothers. He's still trying to bargain and get Lazarus to do his errands for him. He hasn't come to grips that Lazarus isn't that same decrepit nobody beggar that he knew all his life. It's not registering in the rich man's head. It's like God gives us a makeover. You know, Lazarus got a makeover, a spiritual makeover, right? He frees us from the scorn that others may have of us. Uh, I tell you what, we, we buy these veggie tales and these Christian kind of things from my son, and I end up watching them myself. I think they're great. They're good lessons in there. But Max Locato wrote a book called You Are Special, and he really emphasized that point. Some of you are familiar with the book. It's a great book. It just emphasizes the point of how people live in the, they, they live their lives based on what other people think about them. And in the story, the, the, the woodworker who makes these little wooden objects, he's a picture of God, and he says, it doesn't matter what they think of you. All that matters is what I think of you, meaning a picture of how we should only be concerned with what God thinks of us. But just like the rich man, there's going to be people that try to hold us down. But God gives us freedom to be new creatures in Christ. This is very important. Your self-worth, your self-worth, my self-worth, is not embedded in what other people's opinions are of you. Let me say that again. Your self-worth is not embedded in another person's opinion of you. People don't have any power over you, right? The failure complex I see so often, people live with that failure complex. Maybe uh, a parent told you when you were a kid, you're no good, you're worthless. It still escapes me how parents could do that to their kids. And then they grow up with that, with that failure complex. Uh, I saw this movie called Invincible. It was a very clean movie. It was about the Vince Papali story from the Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, his wife left him, said he was a nobody, wrote him a, a note and told him that he was a nobody, that he was worthless. And he tried out for the Phillies and made it, but he just, he, he just didn't really believe in himself. And he would have that note in his locker room, and he'd always look at it. And one day he just ripped it up and didn't let it affect him anymore. So all that matters is what God thinks of you. God loves you, and even when you sin, God is forgiving and he's merciful. And that's all that should be important. Verse 29, Abraham said to him, They have Moses, meaning the rich man's brothers. 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Abraham said rightly, Moses and the prophets. Moses represents the law. So in a sense, they have the law and the prophets. Before Christ, all the Jewish person needed to understand salvation or partake of it was what was put forth in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. Um, following the law and the prophets, believing the promises of God, what does Romans 4 tell us? That Abraham, righteousness was credited to him or it was imputed to him because he believed God. He believed all the promises of God even though they seemed so far-fetched to Abraham. Couldn't have a kid for so many years and God said a great nation will come out of you. But he believed God. He trusted him. Um, and, and these people, this rich man's brothers, had to look and believe in what the Old Testament said to them. Sadly, most synagogues today don't teach the entire Old Testament because it would end up leading the people to, to Jesus. I have a Jewish friend who's uh, he's, he's in his 50s now, and he's been in synagogue all his life. And I show him Old Testament prophecies. He's like, I never read that in synagogue, and he probably never will. You know, how many decades they go through it, and it's just not presented to them. And he says, uh, Abraham says, unless one rise from the dead, they still won't believe. Obviously, Abraham is referring to the resurrection of Jesus and the national, the national rejection of him even after the resurrection. But that will change. Let me read something to you. Zechariah 12, 10 through 12. Zechariah 12, I'm sorry, 11, 10 through 12. So, Again, there was a national re rejection of the Messiah. Uh, you see that's starting to change now, uh, especially in other parts of the world. But this is a part where the light bulb is going to go off to these people. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. That's a messianic scripture. The word for pierced in the Hebrew is carve, which literally means pierced. You can't really translate that to anything else. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Wow. It's, it's a national thing that's going to happen. They're going to grieve when they see the Messiah who was pierced. They're going to be like, all of a sudden the film is going to be lifted and they're going to see Jesus for who he is. And that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Raman in the plains of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. And it continues on. This is going to be a situation where they nationally, there was a national rejection and there's going to be now a national acceptance. Of course, that's going to happen in the future. But notice what's absent from these scriptures. What's, what's absent from the story? Well, there's a few doctrines that people have just come up with over the years. If you'll notice, if I can't prove something concretely from Scripture, I'm not going to sell it to you because I'm very concerned about handling God's Word. But other peoples are not, not so concerned. The Seventh-day Adventists have a, a doctrine called soul sleep, that when you die, you just kind of swoon for a while and you're in limbo and you don't really go anywhere. It's not here. Um, the Jehovah Witnesses have a doctrine called nihilism, where the word annihilate comes from. And what that means is if you, when you die as an evil person, you just cease to exist. The computer chip just shuts down and pew, it's done, you know. 
And that's not true either, because the Bible says if you're evil and you die, you're going to be conscious of what's happening. And also, the doctrine of purgatory is not in here. You know, the flames of fire, if, you're, if you find yourself in the flames of fire and you think you're going to get out soon, it's not going to happen. It's for eternity. It doesn't let up. There is no purgatory. You don't go from the flames of judgment to, to heaven. It just doesn't happen. It's not in here. Apparently, that was something that was come up with around 600 A.D., many centuries after the Bible was complete by Gregory the Great. He couldn't have been that great because he kind of came up with a false doctrine. But let's go into chapter 17, verses 1 through 2. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, that he should offend one of these little ones. What's the significance? Well, offenses. The Greek word is scandala, where we get the word scandal from. And literally, in the Greek, a scandala was a trap stick. It was used as a device to trap an animal, you know, to, to put the cage down on him and, and, and trap him. And what it means is it was, it's a temptation to sin or a harming of the little ones. So it's, offenses are, are to harm a little one or to tempt a little one to sin. Now, the big debate is or the question that people have is that children are new believers. Well, I believe it's both. I believe the application could be made for both of them. Uh, anyone who's tender and innocent and doesn't know better. Because Jesus says, remember, in other parts of the scripture, he says, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you are converted like these little children. So both children and new believers are spiritually naive and innocent. And in verse 2, he speaks about a millstone. It would be better, instead of offending a little one or, or harming them, it'd be better for you in the, in the end if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now, a millstone was a large, heavy stone used for grinding grain. And basically what he's saying is it's much better to die a horrible, drowning death than to be judged for stumbling others. In the context, everything is context in the scripture. It wasn't long ago that Jesus was speaking about the religious leader's false doctrine that led people to hell, to damnation. Anything that causes a little one to fall off the righteous path is what Jesus was saying. His audience included new converts because we saw that in chapter 15. Now remember, you say, well, Joe, they're not so innocent. They were tax collectors. They were prostitutes. Yeah, they were worldly, but they were spiritually naive. They weren't told the truth about salvation. They weren't told the truth about God's love. Yeah, they were doing bad things. They were worldly. They were street smart but they were spiritually naive. They were, they're one of the little ones. Verse 3, it says, Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Um, unfortunately, some people read this as, Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins. Don't say anything to, it, to him. Keep quiet, but gossip to everyone in the church about it, and try to build sides before you've even come to your brother. <laughs> you know? Uh, because why? Why do people do that? Because that's a lot easier than confronting the problem. It's a lot easier to go around talking about it, trying to get sides, than to actually go to your brother and sister and just say, hey, listen, let's talk about this, right? Human nature doesn't want to confront. Verse 4, it says this, And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That's interesting. If he repents, verse 3 and verse 4 both have a conditional statement. If there's repentance, then this is what you do. Why is that? Well, because repentance means to change one's mind, 
to change direction, to completely do an about-face of the attitude that you had, right? That's what repentance is. That's what we have to do before we come to God. I want to read something else to you, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, which kind of hinges on the same thing here. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And it's, it's over at that point. It's over. You've gained your brother. There's nothing more to do. But if he will not hear you, take with, him, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So there's steps here if the person is still hardened. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That's, that's something that a lot of people actually haven't heard. The Tyndale Bible Commentary says this about approaching somebody. It's really about approaching in love. Really good steps here. It says effective confrontation. Number one, pray for God's help in getting your concern across without generating antagonism or defensiveness. That's a challenge. It can be a challenge because your emotions are up. Sometimes your adrenaline is up. And if that's the case, maybe you should wait a while. Two, approach the other person as a friend, not an adversary. That's very important too. Your demeanor sometimes will determine the outcome of your conversation. And this is good because people have asked me, Joe, how do I approach people? I'm not good at it. Three, imagine the most innocent possible reason for the other's fault, not the most insidious or repulsive. That's love because we tend to do that. We give ourselves a break. Hey, I didn't mean it like that. But when somebody wrongs you, right away you think that they're out to get you, right? And four, make your approach a series of gradual and mutual agreements. Could I speak to you? I'm having trouble with something. May I ask you about it? Sort of like in a non-confrontational way. Five, state your case once clearly. Repetition becomes the pounding of a sledgehammer. Okay, I got it already. I got the point. And six, express gratitude for the conversation, confidence in the friendship, and cordial expectations for the future. Show that you harbor no doubt that the matter has been solved. This is great. We can all learn from this because when we get emotional, even in, our, in our, our marriages, sometimes, okay, take a break, take a deep breath, go out for a walk, come back and talk about it later. Because if you're both emotional about it, you just both, you know, you, and no, you don't hear the other person. You just hear yourself, right? You tune out what they're saying, and you, you want to get your point across. So that's really good, I, I thought. I, I had to read that. But again, the whole repentance thing. If you're dealing with a person who hasn't changed, then nothing's going to change. That sounds very simple and idiotic, but it's true. You know, somebody comes back, time has passed, and they haven't changed. Well, nothing's going to change. Time doesn't do anything, really. And there's some people who cause a wake of destruction and let time pass, come back into your life with no heart change. And you know what? Sometimes that's just not acceptable. Because the Bible, the Bible takes steps here to avoid false reconciliation. There's no sense in doing this unless it's heartfelt. And heartfelt. Imagine if we knew other people's thoughts. Sorry, not really. Forgive you, not really. I mean, come on, right? If you're going to do it, it should be, it should be honest. It should be from the heart. I know a pastor who actually, on, on the other end, who said that you're not obligated, nor should you forgive another person unless they ask for it. I don't really totally agree with that because when Jesus was on the cross, remember, 
Now, of course, these people who crucified him and they were evil, and if they didn't come to repentance, they were going to hell anyway. But when Jesus was on the cross and they were spitting at him and they were maligning him and deriding him and all those things, Jesus said, Father, don't hold this to their account. Yeah, they've sinned, but this particular one, let it go. You know, I just forgive him for that. Same thing with Stephen, the first Christian martyr. When they were stoning him, he said the same thing as he was losing his life. He said, Father, don't hold this to their account. So they didn't ask for repentance, did they? They didn't ask for forgiveness. I'm going to try to confuse you a little bit, and then I'm going to bring it all home at the end. Uh, so we can't be legalistic, and I also don't agree with false apologies. That's not repentance. So if somebody is forced to apologize, it's not an apology. You know, I would prefer if my son did something wrong, a little seven-year-old, that he came to me and say, Daddy, um, I'm sorry, and he knows why he was sorry. Not, Daddy, I'm sorry, now can I go back on the computer? You know what I'm saying? You want it to come from the heart. And, but you know what? On the other hand, it's also good for your mental health to just forgive, to let that burden go, to release the grudge, to be the better person. And that's tough sometimes, being the better person. You just, you know, you just got to release it because they're not going to change and you just want to be the better person, right? There's a lot in here. This is really, really good. The Greek word for forgive is aphesis, which means two things, freedom and pardon. It actually means a pardon. Now, you would think, yeah, I'm going to pardon that person. But sometimes the pardons and the freedom is not for them. It's also for you to release those feelings and not be so angry and bitter anymore. Um, I mean, come on, how many people have held grudges? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> a friend of mine says that Italians invented the vendetta. Well, I would, <laughs> there must be some Italians in the audience. Now, I would basically agree because it does end in a vowel, but I don't know. Again, releasing a grudge benefits you as much as it does the offender. A few points here that we can deduce from this. Number one, you can't force reconciliation. We spoke about marriage last week. You can pray for that spouse, you can love that spouse, you can actually change yourself, even though you say, but I'm not the one who's doing the wrong thing. But you can do that. You can show all that love to that person and, and ask God to really change their heart. And in the end, they may just use their free will to say, I'm just not interested. But you know that you did the right thing in front of God, right? Um, some people are just difficult and they don't, wanna, they don't want reconciliation. And you know what? Let the Lord deal with them. And sometimes people can just be hazardous to your health and you just need to stay away from them right and when the rapture comes and the sin is removed from both of you you'll be reconciled again but uh you know many times too people listen with the wrong heart and they only take part of the message that they want to hear and they're like well you know what pastor joe my co-workers are toxic my family is toxic my friends are toxic they're all bad but then i tell sometimes people who look at everyone else to say you know what sometimes you're the common denominator and we've all been there Sometimes you look at everybody else and they're all out to get you, but then you think of, but I'm the common denominator, right? And you want to change yourself. So, you know, and again, on the one hand, let's take the two, let's, let's bring it back again. On the one hand, there's a conditional statement. If they repent, then forgive them. If they repent a hundred thousand times, keep forgiving them. But on the other hand, love can supersede that. And that's where I'm going. You know, you have your, you have your model, but you also have love that supersedes that. You can choose to follow this uh, legalistically, but you can also say Jesus showed love on the cross and he didn't hold it to their account. So you know what? I'm going to follow in my Lord's footsteps and you can choose to do that. Um, two, if you get burned enough, sometimes you, can't, you can forgive, but trust takes time. 
And what's interesting is if you look at the Paul and John Mark division, uh, Paul went on a missionary trip and John Mark came with him. He was kind of young and he, he wasn't really reliable. And Paul said, you know what, I'm just not dealing with this guy anymore. Paul hooked up with Barnabas. Barnabas said, hey, let's bring John Mark. And Paul said, oh, no way. I saw what happened the last time. And there actually was a division there. Barnabas ended up taking John Mark and Paul took Silas. And you see that in the later portions of, of, of Acts. It wasn't that Paul hated John Mark or it was unforgiving. He just needed time to be able to see if this guy was trustworthy again. And actually, if you look at the end, towards the end, he speaks favorably about John Mark again, that he, he must have said, well, he's done a good job. I'm going to learn to trust him again. So trust is a funny thing. Uh, people may try to manipulate you. You have to be my friend. You have to let me babysit your kid again. You don't have to do anything, you know. Don't let people manipulate you. Uh, even after an adulterous affair, the offending party, if the, the victim, so to speak, is uh, willing to take that person back, and they could divorce based on the scripture for infidelity, but if they decide to take the person back, they may want to take steps to see that that person's not going to do it again. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, a few things here. Jesus wasn't manipulated, and God doesn't want his people to be manipulated either. Jesus they tried to manipulate him many a times, but he wasn't having it. I remember a pastor from Calvary Chapel pastor called Gail Irwin wrote a book, Handbook for Servants. He's got a great section in there on dealing with manipulators. And understand this, we're talking about love, which is, and we're talking about forgiveness, which is different, and trust, which is different from that, repentance, manipulation. There's a lot of different terms here, and we have to know the difference between all of them. And putting it in perspective, at the end of Matthew 18, Jesus forgave our sins, and he expects, uh, I think, the, the gravity of, of, the, of the offense. If the person's repentant, we have to forgive those sins. I mean, look what Jesus did. Uh, I also saw this special, I believe it was on the Discovery Channel, where they have a program that uh, victims of violent crimes, or maybe their children or family member was murdered, and they have this program where the, uh, the uh, person who's in prison is really repentant, and it, it's killing them. They just want to tell the family that they're sorry. And they, it's just amazing to watch how they bring the family together and the, the offender. And I'm, I'm just amazed. Some of these people aren't even Christians, and they forgive the guy, right? So, gee, if they could do it, we could do it, right? Uh, so continuing on, it's never good to encourage, in the, same, in the same thing, it's never good to encourage bad behavior in anyone. Never-ending grace sometimes can be an enabler. And that's not good either. It means you're not loving the person. Sometimes we enable our children. You know, we love our children, and sometimes we don't know where the line crosses into enabling. If we raise girls to be princesses and boys to be pretty boys, I can guarantee you two things will happen when they become an adult. Number one, they will be unemployable. They will be unemployable if they're spoiled. No one's going to want to hire them. And number two, they will be unsuccessful in marriage. And that is, that's, that's for sure. Okay, uh, so the Bible is replete with references to bearing fruits of repentance. Uh, we saw with John the Baptist that prior to receiving Jesus, John said you have to bear fruits of repentance. Uh, you know, John's job was to make the, the valleys low, and the, or sorry, the valleys filled in and the mountains low, right? Repentance. And uh, we also see in Acts it says to repent and believe. And when a person is repentant, when a person is repentant, that is when the forgiveness is mandatory and without limit. So, and again, if you, somebody f believes that they're repentance and they're coming to you and you're not sure, a lot of times it's good to just err on the side of love. 
Verse 5. There's just a lot there. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. I think they're saying, boy, Lord, it is tough to be a good Christian. Increase our faith. There's a lot here to learn, right? How do we do it? Verse 6. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed and say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Again, it's not that we're supposed to have... Remember, they said increase our faith. And Jesus said, increase your faith. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, one of the tiniest seeds out there, then this, this is what happened. So what he's saying is, it's not the, the size of the faith it is, really, but it's what you put your faith in. It's better to put a small amount of faith in the right place than have this great faith in the wrong thing. Verse 7. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward will you eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things which were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. So Jesus brings it all home and puts it in perspective in the attitude of a servant. We can never take the glory. We must always do what is our duty as God's servants. Sometimes we get puffed up. You know, we, we're in ministry or we're, we're important in the secular world and, and we're also Christians and we think that we're, you know, we have to get a, a little heart check there because in the end, we're only, and this might offend some people, but we're put here to serve God. We're here on this earth to serve God and to worship him and to be reconciled to him. Nothing more, nothing less, right? (laughs) It's what the rich man missed when he only lived to serve himself in the story, right? And this is what we must see in our own lives. Because in our, especially in our culture, self-esteem is king. Our attitude needs to be that of an unprofitable servant. He who humbles himself, Jesus says, will be exalted. He who is exalted will be brought low. And this is also part of the process towards preparing for eternity. No matter how far out it appears that Jesus goes, because we look at these scriptures and we're like, okay, how do we connect this to what he just says? No matter how far we think that he goes out in, in his, you know, what we think is maybe a tangent on these subjects, he always manages to bring it home, the attitude of an unprofitable servant. And you see this all the time. People prepare suitcases when they go on the flight. Who doesn't? If you're going to another state or another country, and you're there for a few weeks, who doesn't bring anything with them? You know, you bring something because you're prepared. We prepare food when we go on a picnic, otherwise we're going to be hungry. We prepare proper equipment when we go on a hiking trip, right? Why is it that so many people don't prepare for the most important trip of their lives to the next life? That's the most important preparation that we could make. If one day you end up in the lake of fire, don't deprecate God that he didn't give you a strong enough message like the rich man. Well, send somebody else out there to talk to my relatives. It's all here for you. There may not be a stronger message about ending up in, a wrong, in the wrong place when you die than this passage. But the good news is that repenting and believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior is all the preparation that you need to prepare for eternity. Let's think about that. Let's pray. That so many people don't prepare.